Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Matt Cohen, founder of Ripple Ventures, a pre-seed and seed stage venture capital fund based in Toronto that primarily invests in enterprise SaaS companies. As somebody who's Canadian myself, I've been closely following the Canadian VC ecosystem for years, and I've just been thrilled to see how it's grown, led by investors like Matt. In addition to being a full-time VC, Matt also runs a podcast called Tank Talks, which is a must-listen to for anyone in VC and tech. Like he is on his podcast, Matt was thoughtful and candid about how he views investing and running a full-time firm. Hey, Matt. Great seeing you, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Samir. So excited to be here. So we have a couple things in common. We're both Canadian, so I was born in Edmonton, and we're also both podcasters. And because we're both podcasters, I know you speak to so many interesting people on your pod. And I want to go back a little bit in time first into how you got your start into venture. Yeah, for sure. Definitely not the the most well-known path, I'd say. You know, I started my career uh, in capital markets down on Wall Street, working for a Canadian bank, RBC, helping manage their merger, urban adventure, and hedge fund business. So this was at a time, 2005, six, and seven, the height of like hedge funds and you know, adventure and trading and all that kind of activity. Uh, and so I moved down to New York, you know, living in Tribeca. And this was right at the time when sort of Lehman Brothers was collapsing. RBC had acquired a bunch of their assets. I was tasked with helping manage uh, the book of a business that was focused on, in, you know, managing these long short hedge funds, trading these adventure and trading strategies. And a lot of people are familiar with the Flash Boys book by Michael Lewis. Uh, and the main character in that book was Brad Katsiema, who was sort of head of the desk managing a big portion of the equity and sales trading group that I was a part of. And so I got to see that firsthand, you know, the, the Thor trading platform that they had developed, which was creating the speed bump to circumvent the high frequency trading players in the, in the industry. I got to see that firsthand. And it was really interesting. But to answer your question specifically, I had no exposure to the venture capital world, even private equity really at the time when I was living in New York. Uh, I just was sort of reading what was going on through Business Insider. I was really excited to hear about all these companies that were starting up outside of you know uh, Canada during or after the the dot com or the financial recovery. So you know you had the Ubers and stuff being built out, and and I was just really interested. And so when I moved back to Toronto in 2012-13. I actually started a tech company with two buddies. I wrote the first check to get it started. It was a Wi-Fi marketing analytics platform that really just helped brick and mortar retailers take their existing dumb Wi-Fi pipes and turn them into a loyalty marketing analytics platform. So example, if you sign into the free Wi-Fi at Starbucks, instead of using you know a free guest Wi-Fi password, you would use some form of social authentication, uh, which is what we built out and we sold it to all the big franchises like Subway and Dunkin' Donuts and Tim Hortons and stuff. And that company was my first real experience into early stage startups and then eventually venture capital. And we grew that company to about 50 employees, uh, was there from day one uh, until we sold the company to Yelp in 2017. And that was really how I got into venture, uh, which started off with really my first check as an angel investor and then helping build and scale an early stage company. Well, it's interesting that you brought up that you started your career at RBC in the hedge fund industry, which historically has been long, short public trading. And of course, today, the hedge funds are quite active in the private markets. I want to zoom out for a second and, and get your perspective on hedge funds investing in the private markets, you know, the Tigers, the Cotus. Do you believe it's a transient type of trend or do you think this is really part of the new normal as a lot of these hedge funds become multi-asset managers? And where do you see, you know, the world sort of going within the capital ecosystem with those type of players in the next several years? 
Yeah. So I think the term hedge fund is something that we've kind of just splashed across the entire industry of people who have lots of capital and putting it into different type of asset classes. Traditionally, though, hedge funds were actually hedged. You know, they were, you know, not exposed to the market beta and they were just collecting alpha and they had a purely hedge strategy. And those don't really exist in terms of what we're talking about now, like those tigers and the kotus and stuff. What they are trying to do is capture alpha wherever there is alpha. And as you and I both know, and you've talked about it a lot, the public markets just aren't what they used to be anymore. You know, there was 8,000 public companies in the in the 90s. Uh, there's now 4,200 or something like that. So there's half the amount of public companies for these people to invest in. And the starting line is just move further and further back, right? So a company had to be public for them to invest and make their bets. And the starting line just kept moving further and further back, meaning private investors were getting in earlier and collecting alpha or capturing that alpha earlier before these companies went public. And companies, as we all talk about, are taking longer to go public, right? The average time now is nine, 10 years for a company to go public in IPO, excluding like sort of the SPAC phenomenon we're seeing now. So what are these players supposed to do, right? Are they just supposed to sit on their hands and wait around for people to make their money and then get out and then wait to play the game when the, the gun goes off on the IPO? No. So they jump ahead of the line and they come in or, or at the sort of later stage or growth stage rounds. Uh, and I think that's totally logical, right? That's where the alpha is being made. The other thing is, is that these private companies that are staying private longer, they're reporting and functioning like they're a public company. I mean, the, the data that you can get from some of these later stage private companies is amazing. It's better than some companies that are public right now. And I would even say that the early stage companies that we're investing in and on the boards of are reporting and having better governance than some public companies. So I think there's this huge kind of conversion of private and public assets that people used to draw a line between that is now completely blurred. And people are just trying to get into uh, the best companies which will generate the best alpha. And uh, being public is just part of the journey. It's not the end of the road for a lot of them. When we talk about private markets, of course, the private markets have grown pretty substantially over the last decade, particularly as bond market yields have effectively gone to zero. And today, the private markets are $8 trillion. There was a recent Morgan Stanley report that predicted that the private markets will, AUM will, will go to roughly $13 trillion by 2025. But as you look at some of these, you know, the Tiger Cattoos and some of the other hedge funds that are really playing in the private markets because it's where you can get alpha, particularly investing in the innovation sector. Is there anything that you think can reverse that? I don't know what will end it besides, you know, a cycle bust, which, you know, we can talk about after like Eli Gill's recent post about the mega cycles we're experiencing. I really resonated with that. But in terms of sort of what could end it, if the alpha switches to somewhere else, right? If the alpha switches back to the public markets, if interest rates rises and companies that are burning billions of dollars are not where you want to put your cash uh, and you want to put it back into consumer discretionary and utilities and energy and financials, then you know you have to go where the alpha is. So that's something that could obviously crush a lot of the, the high-flying names. But I think the hard thing too, right, is these companies are starting to become really well-managed at taking capital. So they're not taking, you know, the crazy dilution they used to take at these later stage rounds as well. Some of it is secondaries, which we don't discuss enough of. We talk about it like the money is going into the treasury when it's really not. Some of it is just secondaries. And the other part is it's like Tiger is only buying sometimes, you know, five to seven percent of these companies. Sometimes Goldman Sachs is only buying two to three percent to get access to the IPO. And so we're not talking about like big 
dollars going into these companies for significant ownership stakes and controlling ownership stakes like a private equity deal. It's really about getting access to the company, making a small bet to learn about an industry. And then when they go public, that's when they really double and triple down. Right. And that's where I think they're going to ride these companies for 10, 15 years. I agree with that. And and there's a number of things that I think are embedded in in this discussion. So I, I don't know about the interest rate environment, whether that's going to have a major effect if interest rates rise. In recessionary times, usually interest rates remain zero to spur the economy. One thing that is is really always been the case in capital markets is you know, the public markets and the valuations we see in the public markets cascade into the growth markets, cascade into the early stage, cascade into seed. And today, seed valuations have increased pretty dramatically, particularly in the epicenters, whether it be Silicon Valley or New York. How have you seen the rise of the capital markets really affect the type of companies you're investing in, the valuations? And what's your view on valuations at the early stage? Does it even matter that valuations have crept up 30, 40 to 50% in certain areas at the seed. So it's funny, you know, uh, when we show investors or future investors our ownership in our fund one and fund two companies, they're absolutely blown away because we have like an average ownership of about 8% plus post series A across our fund one portfolio with an average first check of only 365,000. You know, you cannot even like get close to that in this type of environment. So like, you know, when we were doing pre-seed rounds at two to 3 million, pre-seed rounds now are being done at like 10 to 15 million. Uh, and then seed rounds, we were doing them, you know, 500K ARR, and they were being done at seven, eight, nine million post money. Um, you can still buy like 10% of the company that is being done at 20, 25, even sometimes crazier, like 30 to 50 post. And so that has really changed the game. And so I'm very curious to see how the numbers shape up for funds in like years five, six, and seven that are sort of 2018 or 2021 vintages. I think it's going to be really hard to return the DPI that people are used to uh, when you come in at such a high price. I think the hardest thing for uh, for funds right now is they don't know what to do with their portfolio construction models. So we've always been a very first check focused fund where we want to own the most amount of ownership on our first check and then follow on maybe once, maybe twice but not to sort of buy more ownership, but even just maintain or even lose a little. Where So we were like 70-30, kind of first check 70%, 30% follow on. Other funds were sort of two to three to one. So they were doing like, let's say a $3 million allocation, you were doing a million on the first check and then two, another million, another million and follow ons. But because these early stage valuations are jumping up so much, the average entry price for a lot of these early stage funds is really looking like a series B, series C valuation, average entry. And so instead of having like, you know, your five, 7% ownership at the series A, you're now left with 2% ownership at the series A, series B, and your average cost of that 2% is like $100 million or maybe like $70 million. And so you really need a massive outcome for that to really make sense if you are a traditional early stage investor that has 15 to 20 investments. So that's the problem, I think, but we won't know about that for another several years. There's two probably vectors that I want to actually dig into. So the first you, you brought up about the uh, the increase in valuations, which of course have really been the case and accelerated over the last you know 12 to 18 months post-pandemic. When we look at investing, it's almost entry price versus exit price. And of course, we know one thing for sure is entry prices today of the companies that we're investing in are, are higher than they have been historically at the seed level. We've seen exit prices become 
significantly bigger too. What used to be a home run at a billion to five billion dollar exit, now you can look at companies that are ten to a hundred billion dollars in market value when they do exit. But we don't know what we're underwriting to in the future. Do we see a reversion where those ten to a hundred billion dollar companies don't happen? And so I'm one thing I'm curious about in, in thinking about portfolio math is on one hand, the higher you invest in, the higher the entry price, it's going to decay returns. But are we now in a space where we should underwrite to those much bigger return cycles? Where, again, going back to my point, maybe that the fact that we're paying 30, 40, 50% higher may not matter as much in a world ahead of us where the exit multiples are just so much higher than they used to be. This is a really important point. So this is where portfolio construction really comes into factor for us especially. So it's obviously the name of the game is to make sure everything is a $10 billion exit. But logically, you can't have that in every one of your bets. And so for us at Ripple, we really focus on which of the bets have very uh, limited traction when we make the bet, but have that huge outlier potential outcome. And we build a portfolio construction out of that. And we factor in our dilution for how much capital it will take to get there and what a likely exit scenario will be. Obviously, it's sort of guesstimation, but we try to make sure that we're making certain bets on those types of like high flyer outcomes. And then we also have our more conservative bets, right? The ones that we know that if things just work out the way we think they will, this could still return five to maybe 10x the fund right? Or 10x the investment. And then we also have ones that were like, okay, this has all the right metrics. It shows a really good de-risk business or product, but they're starting to slow off a little bit on growth. So if we don't see growth pick up, up again, how do we make sure we get a good, you know, three, four, five X our money based on the valuation we're entering in it? And so we break our portfolio down that way. What we're finding really difficult in this market is people are really good at investing, like just spending money but they're not so good at fund management or like returning capital. A lot of people have not returned capital yet from their funds in even like 2015, 16, 17, you know? And so I'm interested to see how people think about that. Now to answer your question though, about like how should we think about the exit multiples and how they've gone up so much, this actually ties perfectly back to your public market comments, right? When you have market caps of trillions of dollars out there, that means that those companies, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons, they can buy companies now for a lot more than they used to acquire companies for because their paper is worth a lot more. They have a lot more cash. They become sort of like these massive, you know, giants of industry that can just gobble up everything. And so, yes, you're right. The, the valuations that these companies can get acquired for is much larger. But I think as a fund manager, you have to be very prudent on which bets are really those like crazy high flyer outcomes and everything needs to align properly versus the ones you need to make sure you're entering in at a good price with a good ownership stake that don't need as much capital as the others to have a more realistic outcome. If you look at the realistic outcomes of the median outcomes, the median outcomes are still under $100 million. It's really the, the outlier performers. Since you did bring up fund management as one of the things that I know you think about a lot, what type of enterprise value have you calculated to get a 3x net of your fund? Because I know you've gone through this math and we've talked about it, but given your ownership, expected dilution for, I think your first fund was $10 million, you know, 3X net is 30 million or 35 million gross when you, when you take into account 20% carry, what did you underwrite to in terms of the enterprise value needed for the portfolio to get to that, that metric? 
Yeah, so it's a great question. And this is the question I ask other fund managers when I'm an LP uh, investing from my family office, Ripple Capital, into other funds. And it's amazing to see how many other GPs don't do this calculation. And so we're very focused on it. So what do you think our fund one enterprise value return has to be to get to 3x net? What do you think? Based on the 8% ownership average, I say. A billion. Try 350 million. Yeah. Yeah, it's really low. You know, in terms of all the fund models, you know, funds that are 10, 20, 30 million typically have between one and three billion in enterprise value needed. And it's really a function of ownership. If you're coming in at ownership stakes in a $10 million fund, let's say you're putting in $250,000 per company and your average post money is 15 million, it's going to result in a net enterprise value required of about two and a half billion. And so it does come down to ownership, but the, the question is how do you maintain that ownership or actually get that ownership up front when you're deploying out a small fund. And that, I think, speaks to your 70% up front versus putting, let's say, only 30, 40, or 50% of the fund in the initial check. Yeah, look, diversification works for you and against you. You know, when things work really well, diversification on the smaller side uh, is great, right? Because it means your home runs are really big impacts on the fund. When you have a lot of portfolios in the uh, in, uh, companies in the portfolio, meaning diversification can work against you when you have a huge outlier, but it doesn't have a big enough impact on the fund. So for fund two, uh, which was another $10 million fund, it's 750 million. And the reason why it went up is because we decided to go after a bit more sophisticated companies at the early stage, more traction, better chances of getting to series A and beyond. And we took a little bit less ownership stake because the valuations were higher, but we still put a meaningful amount of capital behind each company. And so going into you know fund three, we're still thinking about that with 20 core positions, and we're trying to exit Series A with 10% ownership post-Series A raise. So we are very focused on portfolio construction and how we think about it. And then you talk about a lot. It's a lot of art, not science. But I, I, I strongly recommend all GPs out there go through that exercise, that mental math or that Excel exercise, and try to figure out exactly what ownerships make sense for you on average in your portfolio to understand how much enterprise value you need to achieve in order to get that 3x net. And the case for you know more more money up front is you get to invest in these companies when their valuation presumably is the lowest, uh, meaning that you're going to get the ownership. Uh, you can actually still have enough capital to back some of your winners. But at the end of the day, there's the other vector that I mentioned earlier, which is risk. You're taking more risk than another fund that says you know 30% of the capital is at seed, which is the riskiest. And then 70% is going to reserve once those companies in my portfolio de-risk. And so from a risk-adjusted basis, I feel more comfortable going with a 30-70 portfolio or a 50-50 portfolio in terms of initial and, and follow-ons. What's your view on that? And if you were to provide any response to a skeptic that says, well, maybe you're taking too much risk at the early stages, and therefore the amount of risk I'm taking investing in Ripple is much higher than a traditional seed fund. What would be your response? So first off, my response would be, I'm doing this with my own fucking money. Okay. On my first fund, the GP was 33% committed capital. Second fund, 10%. So we have a lot of our own skin. I have a lot of my own skin in the game to make these bets. And so I put a lot of emphasis on how to make our company successful. Our goal is to have no zeros in the fund. And so the reason why I'd say our model makes more sense is because one, we actually have a lot more control than other investors who are just writing that 250 scout check into a, a round. We're on the boards. We have a lot more insight into the companies and we have a lot more 
uh, understanding of how the companies are going to be built rather than just being a, a sort of fly in the wall, follow on investor. So that's number one. Number two is if the companies are going to break out with all the capital in the ecosystem right now, what is the chances I'm even going to get to use those reserves if I'm not a majority investor, right? I don't get pro rata rights. I don't have the information to access. I'm basically holding on to that money to hope that the winners like me enough to let me invest at their Series A when Andreessen or Sequoia is leading. And that's not a really good strategy either. So we want to solidify ownership and have a lot more impact on how our companies perform than just hoping and praying that they're going to like us a lot, that they're going to give us our pro rata. So that's the one answer I would say. The other thing is with how much capital has been coming into the seed round and how much capital is available to raise for follow-on reserves, our LPs love the fact that we actually write a bigger check in the beginning, solidify ownership, and then let them come in to write an LP direct check on a Series A when Lee Fixel is leading the A, right? And so our LPs like it, that strategy, right? Get out of the way, let our family offices, high net worth or soon-to-be institutions write the direct check. And that's what everyone's doing now with you know SPVs and stuff. And so I think we were just playing where the puck was going rather than sort of just waiting for people to tell us what to do. And it's working out well. There are a number of funds that have sort of shifted into this more collaborative model, writing smaller checks, being non, non-frictional to, to founders. And typically it's a lot of the solo GPs, rolling funds. And the, uh, the entire business model is centered around, I'm going to write a small check. I don't have to push anyone off the cap table. I can add value. Yeah, at a small level, and of course, you know, my check size is not going to dictate a lot of value add. You've taken the, the opposite approach of, we want to be a bigger piece of your round. We're going to be your sixth man sitting at the table with you and helping you get to that those next level milestones. Does that ever need to be flex where you go outside that because you've seen a great founder or you see a great opportunity where you don't get the type of ownership that works for your traditional model, where it's not that 8%, but maybe it's 3%. How do you go about making those exceptions and what are you underwriting to when you do make those exceptions? Yeah, hundred percent. We do make those exceptions, especially in our second fund. So when we are going a little bit later, early stage, sort of seed plus early series A. So one, you know, now that we've made, you know, over 15 plus investments, we start to see what kind of character the right founders have when they kind of are taking off on that huge velocity track towards like series A and beyond. When we find those founders, we totally get the hell out of their way. You know, they say you spend about 80% of your time with the bottom 25% of your portfolio, right? So when you, you have a good founder that's starting to hit their velocity, you have to get out of their way. And so we don't always lead every round or co-lead every round. We probably lead about two thirds of the deals we do. Um, and that's because we like to be passionate about the, 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 the problem that they're solving. And we like to put our money where our mouth is uh, and help the founders raise that round too. So it, it's a good signal when Ripple comes in, we're going to lead the round or co-lead it. And we'll bring a syndicate of investors around us like we did with Buildable. We brought in other funds like Village Global and you know Golden Ventures and others. Uh, and when we led that round, it was really helpful for the founders to know they had someone like us in their corner. But for other investments that we've made in companies like Marpipe, where there was like a lead investor that was an $8 million Series A, you know, stage two capital was leading it. We came in as a co-investor. We were very you know easy to get through the, the funding uh, round. And we're there with the founders whenever they need them. And so what, what we're saying is, when the founders want us at the table and they understand that they don't know what they don't know and they're not the smartest in the room at all times, they come to Ripple and ask us to, to be their lead investor or co-lead. When they know what they're doing and we believe that they know what they're doing because we see the signs of it and we've seen other founders look like them, 
then we start to be a bit more passive and say, okay, we'll be a co-investor and we're here when you need us. Do you have a set of criteria or a, a certain framework you look at in terms of evaluating companies that are exceptions, whether it's the founder, what they've done before, the size of the market, where the company is from a traction standpoint? Is there a checklist of some sorts? And I know it's informal and it's probably not formalized, but you know these second order decisions of when to make an exception and certainly even when to make a follow on are really interesting to, to discuss. So as you look at those, I'd love to hear how you think about the exception process. First of all, when a company has product market fit and we can confirm they have product market fit, it's a lot easier to get the heck out of the way and let them take the money and put it on the fire and, and turn it up full blast. Like that's not a company you want to get in the way of. And so, you know, companies like Marpipe, companies like Voiceflow now and their Series A, you know, you want to get the heck out of their way because they know what they're doing. You know, ENIAC, Hadley just posted the other day on Twitter, you know, how do people describe product market fit nowadays? And what I responded with was when your customers are looking to hire employees that have skill set based on using your company's technology, that means you have product market fit. Meaning they can't hire someone who doesn't know how to use Photoshop. That means you have product market fit. And so when we see companies like that, we double down and bet, 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 because we know that that company is just going to continue to grow. Their product velocity is exceptional. Uh, and they know what they're going to do with the capital we give them. They're not wasting it on you know Google and Facebook advertisements and throwing spaghetti at a wall. We don't want to bet on that. You mentioned a third of the first fund was GP capital. The second, you had 10% GP commit. And you also offer a lot of SPV opportunities to your, to your investors, which I think historically have been non-institutional. So family offices, individuals. And you and I had this conversation that you intentionally went after non-institutionals as part of your LP base, what were you looking to optimize for with those um, you know, initial funds? You know, honestly, I just wanted to prove to investors that I could do this with my own capital. And along with those that trusted me the most, like family offices and high net worth investors, in order to show them that I wasn't in it just for the asset gathering. You know, instead, I wanted to build the infrastructure around me, including fund management, reporting, and portfolio management before I put the fuel on the fire with more institutional capital. And I wanted to come to institutional investors with a proven track record and not just out of the necessity of trying to gather more assets, but out of a position of strength. And you and I talk about this a lot. You know, I wanna, I wanna emphasize how important it is. This is a very, very long business. I told my wife, I'm probably not gonna make any money for the next like five to 10 years. So like buckle up, it's gonna be a bumpy ride, but it's gonna be a lot of fun. And so I wanted to build the infrastructure around me that could withstand those like bumps along the way. Uh, and so what I did was I don't take a salary from the fund. I put it all back into our team and our associates and our infrastructure, our fund management, the door advisors, our reporting, everything like that. Because I think it's important for people to understand that like I don't get paid until my investors get paid, you know, with Carrie. And so that's really important to be aligned with that. And I wanted to show that to institutional investors before I came to them for our, for our next fund. Yeah, and it is a long-term game, and it, it does actually take a long time to actually prove out a track record. Even when you go out for fund three, you might be three or four years in, good markups. And when you look at institutional investors, it's a long sales process. These are not people that typically write a 10 or $20 million check after the first meeting or second meeting. What have you done? And a lot of people are going through this very same thing. Fund one, proof of concept. Fund two, still proving things out. And then fund three comes some scale with the institutional type of investors, but it usually requires 
some level of process to get in front of those institutions well in advance, get to know them, build relationships. Tell us what you've done, maybe perhaps to get ready for the time when you, whenever you go out to raise your third fund and look at some institutions. Did you spend a lot of time with those investors? And at what point did you start engaging with them? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I started engaging with them when I was raising my first fund, but didn't tell them we were going to take any of their capital. I didn't even come to the conversation asking them for capital. You know, there's a piece of advice I was given. It's like when you come to ask people for money, you get advice. And when you ask people for advice, you get money. And so I really just wanted to get to you know know these people uh, and tell them what my story was and tell them what I was building. And I said, look, I'm not ready for your capital yet. I'm going to prove that I can do what I'm going to do with my own capital first, and then I'm going to come back to you and prove it to you. Uh, I send quarterly updates to all of our investors. We're very transparent, and we can get into how we report to our existing LPs. But I also send those quarterly updates to non-LPs, right? To some of the institutions that we we want to stay close to, you know, like the Sapphires and the top tiers and the Horsley Bridges and stuff like that. Uh, we're really uh, really transparent on on how we do that. I also do uh, an annual LP. Uh, meeting with all of our LPs that I record and I send it to them as well to talk to them about how we showcase our, you know, our portfolio company CEOs and uh, our company updates and, and fund updates to our LPs to show them if they were an LP, what it would look like. And then last thing I've been doing recently is I've been building a recap video uh, of the year uh, and to show like the progress we've made uh, and share that to some uh, future LPs in a quick like three, four minute recap video. It's really amazing what you can do now, obviously, in this digital world to communicate with people better. Uh, people think communication is worse. I actually think it's actually a lot better because people are more willing to click on a link and, and watch a quick uh, recap video or you know scroll through a presentation a lot easier. So those are some of the things we've been doing to keep the future LPs up to date. Certainly, you know, it speaks to a lot of more efficiency that we can uh, we can manage through through things like video, through updates on email and other mediums. And you obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about how do you get yourself ready to be institutional by engaging people early, engaging people often, and under this era of complete transparency of here's the good, here's the bad, here's how we think about it. And content is a big piece of that. So you also do a podcast, which you interview GPs, founders. And I think what ends up happening with those pieces of content is people start to get to know you without having ever met you and they know what your voice is. What's the importance of content strategy for a fund manager? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I have to admit, I've not been very good at Twitter, if that's a real thing. I'm much better just having conversations like you are with me right now. And so, you know, our podcast started out as almost like a side project during COVID. Originally, when we started our first fund, we built an incubator in Toronto called The Tank. And that's where we worked alongside our portfolio companies that were based in Toronto. It was about 5,000 square feet. There were 50 desks where we had our portfolio companies in Toronto work alongside us day to day. And so every sort of every other week or so, we'd have someone from the ecosystem come in and give a tank talk. It was something about like, you know, specific things on recruiting, growth marketing, sales strategies, whatever it was. Uh, obviously, with COVID, we had to shut that down. And so we decided to move it online. Uh, and so we're doing, doing them on Zoom. And then people said, hey, did you record that? I'd love to listen to it later. I said, OK, sure. So I put it up on YouTube. Then people asked if they can listen to just the audio. So I had to put it up as an RSS feed. And then one thing led to another. And people started asking if they can start dialing into more of these tank talks. And it turned into a podcast. And what I realized was, you know, kind of the ripple effect was taking hold where people were reaching out and saying, hey, I love that conversation. I get to understand how you think about certain problems. I would love for you to like meet our company. And so we were getting deal flow out of it. We were getting to meet with, you know, potential other amazing co-investors that were hearing about us and how we think about it. 
And it's really just ballooned into this, you know, 60 plus episode podcast platform that we deliver every week on Thursdays. And uh, it's really helped us build out our network of operators and other uh, co-investors, which I completely uh, think was something that just happened naturally. Like you said, it brings a human element to who I am as a person so that when someone comes and pitches me or I pitch them, they already know how I think and, and what I you know get excited about. The other thing that we focused on is just like our, our writing blogs and then our fellowship program, which I can explain in a moment. Yeah, I, I think without without a doubt, content, if done the right way and authentic, can have meaningful effects in terms of things like sourcing and winning deals. We had a couple guests on our show, Turner Novak and Jeff Morris Jr., who I think have done a fantastic job in really building their own personalities online where they are getting people self-selecting into them. And when they meet these people, they already know sort of the the methodology and the way, you know, Jeff and in this case, Turner work. It also requires a lot of time. And for you, you are investing, you're raising money, you are producing a podcast, you are helping your portfolio companies, you're thinking about fund management, you're building a team. As a solo GP, a lot of people actually don't think about all the things they need to do to be a successful franchise. How have you navigated through all this from a scale perspective? And what are some of the things that somebody starting off a firm should think about when embarking on, you know, starting a brand new firm? ADHD is what I would say. I mean, literally, like that's just how I kind of function. It's like every single day I wake up and I'm so excited to kind of just get through all these tasks, you know, and share more and more about what we're building at Ripple. And it's not to say I don't have a life outside of it. It's just a lot of the time, you know, when I'm on walks with like my dog or, you know, taking my newborn daughter for a walk, like I'm listening to a podcast. It's either your podcast, it's, you know, Harry Stebbings or something else, because I'm so excited to hear how other people are thinking about the problems I'm facing on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, I'm very uh, focused on efficiency you know, when it comes with my team, you know, we're fully remote, obviously now, and we've never been more efficient with our time. Uh, we love to build playbooks and templates around all the things that we do. And we just are so passionate as a team about helping our founders that we are in constant contact with them. Like I still talk to a lot of our founders on a daily and weekly basis over text message. Uh, and, you know, you were asking like, you know, let some of your best founders kind of go free and focus on the ones that need the most help. Some of my best founders don't want to stop talking to us. They just want to keep sharing things that they're excited about. You know, oh, check out this quote we just got from one of our new customers or check out this Twitter thread of someone sharing our our product with their, you know, friends with them. It's like they're so passionate about it and so are we that it just fires us up every day. And so we're we're excited to keep happening, helping all of our, our founders do what they love because at the end of the day, they're our clients. Like, yes, our LPs are are the ones that give us capital to support our founders, but they don't get paid for like seven to 10 years. So on a day-to-day basis, our founders and our employees of our companies are our clients and we want to help them as much as we can. And so we made that promise to them when we gave them money and we're going to be there for them every day. Well, you're a great proxy for so many people that do start in this business. And it's, it's really the love for the business itself, working with such smart people, learning continuously and actually building a franchise as an entrepreneur, in this case, a fund entrepreneur. But for those that are, that are starting now, is it a piece of advice that you would impart with them related to, hey, this is where you need to spend a lot of time. Don't cut corners on it. And it's probably more work than you actually think it is going to be going into it. 
Yeah. I mean, there was a piece of advice I got. It was like the 10,000 coffees rule. It's like the person you want to have coffee with, you're not going to get to in a straight line. So you got to go through that 10,000 coffees with other people who may not immediately add value to you, but they will eventually help you get to having coffee with Samir Kaji one day. Like that is something that I truly believed in from day one. And so you got to go through a lot of shit to get to the end of the line, but that's okay. Cause all of that progress eventually makes you a better person, a better investor, a better, you know, friend and operator. My experience with, you know, Turnstile, our first company, that was a lot of crappy days, you know, getting turned down by over 300 plus investors, almost getting acquired by Groupon and then having it fall apart at the last moment, trying to recruit people to come and work for the company when we had no money to pay them, we had to entice them with options which were basically worthless at the time. You know, going through all of those things that may appear like just pounding your head against, you know, cement, really built me into a better investor and operator and fund manager. And so I would say to people out there looking to get started, don't look at like all the work you have to do to get to being a successful fund manager as work, but looking at it as just a part of the process to getting there. Because thinking through, if you can make it through that, then what happens on the other end when you do eventually come into some serious problems, you'll be able to withstand those as well. And so we kind of think about that the same way with our founders, when they have a big issue that they got to deal with, we're usually the first call because we have a great way of thinking about how to go through that problem solving and rather than just like throwing our hands up in the air and yelling to the wind. The part that you mentioned, it was, just, it, was it struck me as you were kind of going through your, all the no's that you got in, in terms of the company that you ran. And now as a fund manager, it's no different. You're going to talk to a lot of LPs that effectively say no or not now. A lot of what you do right now in terms of true cash on cash returns and making money are much longer term. And there's so much resilience that you have to have to be able to manage the ups and the downs consistently, both yourself, your family. Are there certain characteristics that you really need to have to really drive that long-term resilience? Patience and empathy, I would say, are two of the things that I really look for in people. If you have the patience to understand how long the journey really is, then you're not going to make a big stink out of things that happen on a short-term basis, but you're going to look through the horizon and see the long-term vision of what you got to do to get there and just be like, this is a part of the game. And then for me as an investor, empathy is such an important quality because a lot of these founders are putting their lives on the line and trying to do something that's very, very difficult, right? If startups were easy, they would just be called the way and no one would go and work in corporate you know, banks or ivory towers. And so having empathy towards what they're going through in their day-to-day lives, you know, sometimes a, a founder may snap at you and be like, I don't want to do this monthly update. Or I don't want to send this out. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to prepare this board presentation? And coming at the conversation with a bit more empathy to say, look, you're not doing it for me. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your future investors. And you're doing it to make your life easier down the road. A lot of our founders always like give us a little bit of a hard time. Not a lot, but some of them do about like putting together a data room when they're going fundraising. You know, oh, I just saw someone raise $100 million. Like, why can't I just go do that? You don't see a lot of the crap that a lot of people go through to get to that big, splashy TechCrunch article. And so we're trying to be their guiding light and trying to help them say, look, these are the processes that people go through behind the curtain. And eventually you'll get that big TechCrunch article. But this is the stuff that you actually have to do that nobody talks about that we're going to just tell you is like the truth because nobody else will. And so those are the kind of things I would say is patience and empathy. And it's much easier to, I think, have patience and empathy when you've been in their shoes and you've been through those ups and downs. And now I'm on the other side as an entrepreneur. And I have to do those monthly reports. I actually view it as good governance. It helps me think and it actually challenges my thinking. And so 
it does come up and certainly having the mindset as an investor to put yourself in the other person's shoes is a really important one. Speaking of advice, I want to end it with a with a question really related to maybe it's a podcast guest, maybe it's somebody that you worked with before, but what is the most important piece of advice that has helped and become more, most transformational for your career? I think about this a lot. And you know, I was once told that the people you see on the way up are the same people you see on the way down. And that's important to be kind to everyone and always make time for those less fortunate. Because you never know how your decision to have a coffee or a quick chat with someone will come back around in the future. You know, that philosophy has carried into my life's work until this day. You know, I truly believe in the ripple effect that one small decision can change the outcomes of many people's lives. And I saw that with my very first company, Turnstall, and how my decision to write that first check to get the company started when nobody else would ended up changing 50 people's lives when we were acquired by Yelp. And seeing those ripples turn into waves is exactly why I called the firm Ripple Ventures. The other one that's an easy one to not forget is don't believe your own bullshit. Yeah, I, I love this too. And today, you know, we're living in a world where everyone feels incredibly smart and brilliant. And, you know, we've seen those things self-regulate over time. So there was a great Doug Leone quote that was in a recent podcast. He said, we've done extraordinarily well, but we have done nothing for tomorrow. And it's just, we are who we are, but we can't sit on our laurels. We can't believe all the hype about us. And it's really important. And the other thing that you brought up, it actually resonates really strong because I've seen in my career, we were very fortunate to be in a position where we met a few bets. And in our case, we bet on the emerging manager ecosystem. But there was always that one introduction or that one person that you met that truly transformed the arc of your success. And as long as you know that each little thing you do has a cascading effect that you may not even know for several years later you are going to conduct your career in a very different way. Matt, this has been a lot of fun. For those that haven't listened to it, go to Tank Talks. I believe it's on Spotify and iTunes. It's a great podcast. Thanks again for being on, my friend. You know, Samir, thank you so much for having me. And I got to give you a shout out. Honestly, you know, since the first time I connected with you when I launched Ripple, you've been such an ally and supporter of emerging managers, especially ones like me who never came from the venture world. And it provided me with so much advice and honest feedback and thoughtful insight on how to build an everlasting venture franchise. And I just want to say thank you for helping out the little guys like me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Matt. To learn more about him or Ripple Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on this show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.